Hello everyone and welcome to The Hidden Lives of Writers. I'm Fiona Snickers and I'm joined by Gail Schimmel. Hi Gail, how's your week been? It's been an interesting week from a writing point of view because I am brewing a new book in my head. Ooh, exciting. It is fun and it's such a nice stage. I mean, you know that stage when the voices are in your head and you're getting to know them and you're not feeling the pressure to write yet. But I've discovered a very strange change in my process about where I do my thinking. And I've been, I think a lot in the car, I drive a lot. And I think a lot in the car. Mm-hmm. And I've realized that I have to have something on in the background, but it can't be something I'm not interested in. So I have this strange di- dichotomy that I have to be listening to a podcast or something that I'm really interested in listening to, and that will stimulate my thoughts. And then I'll completely stop listening to my podcast. But if I try and <laughs> turn it off, because now I'm not listening to it, I stop thinking. It's new, this strange need to listen and not listen and I'm finding it quite confusing it's a different way of thinking but at least the book is there and brewing how's your writing week been well I've I've been doing a little bit of writing but I've mainly been concentrating on editing my page proofs for my new book that's coming out later this year I'm going to stop you there and ask you to remind me what a page proof is yes for our listeners a page proof is basically the final stage of editing when you are bringing out a book that's traditionally published. And I remember a time when literally a courier would knock at your door and present you with an envelope full of pages, which was your book printed out, laid out as it would be on the page in book form. And this was your absolute last chance to find any errors, do any edits, make any changes that you wanted. And you would do them on the page and then When you were ready, a courier would come and pick that up and take it back to the publisher. So that was a long time ago. That doesn't seem to happen these days. These days, you get it in electronic format as a PDF. You can't edit the PDF, but you can make a list of changes that you want to make. And once again, it's your absolute last chance to get the book right, to pick up any errors, Uh, It's your last chance to find out whether you're about to embarrass yourself publicly. So it's quite stressful. But it's also, in the case of most writers, it is the billionth time you are reading Mm. this book. And you are so tired of it. You are so sick of it. That's what I was about to ask you. Do you do it properly? Because I'm going to confess... I don't do it properly. I'm so fed up with my books by that point that I don't actually care at that point whether the entire book is spelt incorrectly. (laughs) I just don't want to read it again. And I trust the people who've come before me and the proofreaders and the copy editors, et cetera, et cetera. And I might glance at it, Mm -hmm. but I certainly don't do a thorough job. Do you do a thorough job? You know, I used not to. I used to sort of peek at it between my fingers and page through it quickly and then shove it out of the way because it all looked so terrible. But then there there were a couple of books that came out with the odd mistake, the odd howler that I really wished I'd caught. Mm. So this time around, I'm determined to do it properly. I'm reading every painful word, but I'm at the point where – I kind of want to throw the whole book away and start from scratch, you know, and you can't do that at this point. You can't. You really have to stick to small things. It's not a rational voice in your head that's saying, this is complete nonsense. This is the worst book ever written. Because I do remember a time when I was very excited about this Mm. book. And I'm just trying to calm down and just look for the small issues, the missing words, the little typos, something that's been laid out weirdly. And I am very aware that there's a proofreader doing this at the exact time Mm. that I'm doing it. And I know who she is and I trust her greatly. So I'm going to try and do a, a proper conscientious job, but I can't pretend it's fun right now. I'm going to try and be inspired by you next time I have to do it and do a proper job. I'm particularly bad, I have to admit, with the Katie Gales, mm-hmm. um, where because of the way when you write two people writing together, you, you read the book more than when you write alone. Um, I can't right. explain why, but you do. And I really, by the time we get to that level, I'm done. I'm so done with those books. Um, and I haven't done it properly on any of them. So I'm going to be inspired by you. Okay, well, we all need a break now and then. We need something to watch, to listen to, to read. 
What narratives have you been consuming this week? So what I have loved this week is I'm struggling with reading at the moment, Mm -hmm. um, but I read a book that I absolutely loved called We All Want Impossible Things by Catherine Newman. And it's a book about a woman whose best friend is dying, which doesn't sound very cheerful. No, it doesn't. But it manages to be very uplift, very upbeat, very cheerful, very amusing. You cry, but you also laugh a lot. And I just, I loved it. I, I found it so, it was exactly what I felt like reading. It's the sort of thing I feel like writing. And it's been interesting from a writing idea point of view, because one of the things that was unique for me about this book, every character was nice. Mm -hmm. There were no baddies. Even the ex-husbands were not horrible people. You know, there was no one who was bad. Everyone was nice. Is this a memoir or a novel? It's a novel. Right. 100% a novel. So it can be a bit quirky and funny and have really mad scenes. Um, The narrator is dealing with her best friend's death by sleeping with everybody. And (laughs) it is hilarious. It is absolutely hilarious. And I'm setting a challenge to myself. To sleep with as many people as you can. (laughs) (laughs) Not to sleep with everybody. That sounds far too tiring. But to write a book full of nice characters. Because, you know, I Mm -hmm. normally write domestic noir. So you have to have bad, dark characters. Everyone's a bit dark in my books. Yes, and and you have. I must say you have done that. I'm going to write a book full of nice people. That's my challenge to myself. It's quite difficult, and that's why I have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. What about you, Fiona? How have you filled up the tank this week? Well, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts, uh, basically because I just love them. And I've been listening to an interview with Kelly Slater, who is the world champion surfer at the moment. He's the 11 times world champion, and he won his most recent world championship at the age of 50. When the people he was competing against were not half his age, they were literally 30 years younger than him, and he won it. And it was remarkable. It was celebrated all over the world. And he just talks about that journey, about his uh, long career, uh, the challenges he's faced, the difficulties, how he overcame them. And to me, it ties into someone like Tom Brady, you know, the footballer who was still an absolute champion quarterback into his mid forties when the people that he was competing against were, were born when he was just starting out. So this reinvention of yourself at an older age, mm. this idea that age is but a number, that there, there's no limit to what you can accomplish as you are aging. And I've seen it reflected in the current Hollywood Awards season mm. as well. I don't know if you've noticed that. But the people that are getting the awards and all the nominations at the moment are belong to an older generation, like um, Jamie Lee Curtis, Jennifer Coolidge, uh, Michelle Yeoh, just these writers who either have always had active careers or who had a lull in their career and have now come back and reinvented themselves. Also, Brendan Fraser. Do you think it's because we're older that we're noticing the achievements of older people? Or do you think there really is a an increase in the power and achievements of older people? I think there is a genuine resurgence in and interest in what older mm. people are doing because Journalists are talking about it. The columnists are commenting on it. This, this is a thing. It's a phenomenon. And I think that we as a culture, and Hollywood in particularly, really used to worship youth to an undue extent. And now there's much more interest in the complexities of people in midlife and past midlife and what they can do and what they can achieve and what they can teach us. And I just find it fascinating. And so exciting to be older in a time where being older is exciting. Absolutely. We have a great guest on this week. Um, It's Nick Mplongo. Welcome to the Hidden Lives of Writers, Nick. You know him from his novels, uh, Dog Eat Dog, Way Back Home, After Tears and his uh, short story collections that he has written and also his short story collections that he has curated and edited. Welcome, Nick. 
Thank you, thank you very much, uh, Fiona. And Nick, this is here. so exciting and you made time for us on your brief visit to South Africa and we're really, really grateful for that. But we're going to start jumping right into writing process. How has your writing week been? It, it has been slow. Uh, why has it been slow? Is because of load shedding. I don't work according to schedule. So I work according to inspiration. So if something inspires me, I go and write. So uh, you'll find that I'm inspired, but there's no light, mm -hmm. you know. And um, I have a very old, uh, uh, you know, uh, computer, uh, laptop, which you have to plug in. So it's not running off a battery. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You need to plug it in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nick, your writing career started quite a few years ago uh, when you were very young. Yeah. Uh, you did a BA at Wits and then you were doing an LLB at Cape Town, right? Yeah. And you interrupted that to write your first novel, Dog Eat Dog in 2004. Did you actually drop out of the program to do that? How did that work? Let, let me be honest, I failed. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I love it. We love honesty on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, so, so I failed uh, on my final year. I decided, what else can I do? Let me just buy a computer and do what I love. Which so is I writing. Writing, right. know? And I got carried away with writing, no longer concentrating on my degree, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then that was uh, towards the end of uh, the final year. So I failed two courses mm -hmm. and I decided, no, I'm not going back because I believe in this. And right, that was Doggy right, right. Dog. dog. Um, actually, it was Doggy dog, dog and After Tears. It was two books combined. It was right, one manuscript. Right, right, right. And then when they say, ah, we don't like this chunk, chuck it away. I said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm just putting it for the next book and it became after tears yeah so that was a bit of a journey about it yeah i've got two questions i have to ask from yeah. that the first one i have to ask because i'm the person who also did law without any real passion for law mm -hmm. but finished it and then got caught up in the career of being a lawyer you know you almost get into a hamster wheel of what you have to do next now you've got to do articles now you've got to do your exams mm -hmm. do you regret not finishing that degree or is it the best thing you ever did actually it's two ways firstly i, re I regret wasting my time Mm. On, on that degree. But with writing, it came opportunities, of course, and great opportunities that I always loved. It would have been great, like you, Gail, to have a, a writing career, but with a law background, having it as, a, okay, that's there. There's a certificate or whatever degree being there, something that I can fall back to, you mm. know. Whenever I have, uh, yeah. The problem when you've got to fall back, you do fall back. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. You've shared the story, almost the next step of what you started telling us on Instagram recently about how you got that first book published. And it's fascinating. Can you share that a little bit with yeah, us? Yes. So um, after writing uh, um, my uh, manuscript, uh, remember, I was a law person. Um, my mind was operating in law. I didn't know anything about, although I did um, African literature uh, at the university, my mind was not into, tuned into literature, you know, because there was no Google around that time. A simple write, right nowadays they can write to me directly and say, hey, Mr. Mflongan, by then it was difficult. Uh, your role models like Zixim Da, you look at them from very far, you know, mm. Njabul and mm. you look them very far, you know. Yeah, and, they're uh, not your Facebook friends. They're not friends. your Facebook friends. Mm. And uh, so even when they have a particular reading, you cannot go the red tape. There's always a red tape around friends and whatever. Mm. You cannot talk to them, you know. So it was difficult around that time. So I had a manuscript. I'm having it here. The manuscript, I've, I wrote it to impress, not to express. Nobody told me. And why I say so, it was full of law jargons. <laughs> Mutakis, mutandis, you know, all those kind of things of law. And then trying to impress the publishers. And of course, English is not my first language, you know, not even my second language for that <laughs> matter. So, and you don't know actually the technique of writing. Even if you read the techniques of writing, you don't understand them because you need somebody to tell you what those techniques are practically. So that was my journey. So I have this manuscript. So I uh, took my manuscript 2002 after believing that I, this is done. 
and I go to Sour Street. By then, it was Sour Street, Brixley, that same, eh? mm-hmm. opposite ANC house. And then I uh, at the reception, can I speak to so-and-so? Because I've got the name of this reviewer. He's the one who's going to tell me where to send this manuscript. But I also didn't know that it doesn't work there. Mm. It's just a freelance. <laughs> and I told myself, I'm not going until they give me the name of this person. And then this person, they contact him from somewhere. Uh, and uh, I speak over the phone. Ah, I'm not a publisher, but try uh, Macmillan or whatever, whatever, and say, where are they? Because there's no Google around that time. Mm-hmm. Tell me where they are. Lower Houghton. So I take a taxi and then... Straight from straight from SARS. Yeah. Goes, no, no one is stopping you I, on the stair. I'm going to the rank. Yeah. Go to the course. It's just here. Lower Houghton is just here. Just the yes. end of Hillbro. It's that Lower Houghton, you know, mm-hmm. uh, by the Jobek Jam. Get there and I find this great guy and then I leave my manuscript with him. He says, leave it with me. Um, it normally takes, the process normally takes three months. And this know? is the only copy of the this manuscript is the only, this in is existence. the only copy in the manuscript. And then I say, I know the offices. Let me go there. After This is after three months. And they say, oh, we had that guy. Man, like, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, we had him. But uh, I don't know, he's left. Oh, dear. And my computer here has broken. Mm-hmm. I cannot mm-hmm. retrie- retrieve anything, you know. That was the only copy that I had. And I said to them, no, I cannot go until you give them me the manuscript or at least tell me what is going on. And I insisted, you know, that I'm not going. And they could see that I was serious. I know Mandla is gone. Okay, fine. But he put it somewhere because I saw him where he took the manuscript to, say, around that room. Only to find that in that room, it's a room where they put lots of you know, there are lots of manuscripts around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So they say, close the door. I had to look for my manuscript. Oh, my goodness. Uh, but because, you know, by then what we used to do is like you put your your manuscript with nice colors outside. Mm-hmm. So it was not difficult to find. <laughs> so then I retrieved it. Oh, you, you know? found it, thank yeah, goodness. Yeah. I found it. And then uh, what's next? Then I sit with this person. Ah, sorry. Yeah, we couldn't tell you on time, what, 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 you know, apologize. But I said, okay, I understand your apology, but tell me who can publish this? Where can I go to publish this? You know? Mm-hmm. And they said, mm, they start listing. They said, Jonathan Bo, or uh, I wonder, I, I forgot, yeah, but Jonathan Cape, or whatever, whatever, things like that. But they also mentioned Quella. Yeah. And said, this sounds black. <laughs> Definitely, I'm going to get <laughs> published. Yeah. You know, they will understand my language because it's a, it's, it's in Tzotital, you know, the book and whatever. That's full of Tzotital. And I decided there and there that I have to go to Cape Town. Mm-hmm. So, but I didn't have money. So I had to borrow from friends and whatever. And then went back to Cape Town. But with them, I told them I got a job in Cape Town. So, <laughs> not I'm following a yeah, dream <laughs> yeah exactly so I went to Cape Town and there I find a young man who just came from England James Woodhouse mm-hmm. who later became a mm-hmm. publisher oh, yes yes and then he had just came to visit his girlfriend then you know in the summer and say oh, so he had asked Quella to read manuscripts and I sit around with him and say, well, I've got this manuscript and we sit around we have coffee we became friends we talk about it and then he read it. Of course, uh, 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 you know, after three months again, um, they rejected uh, the manuscript, for instance. Uh, but James is the one that mm, it still has some, uh, there are some angle which I like, you know. It's full of, you know, township thing. I like that. Uh, I, di- I don't know much about the township, but let's focus on this. So I had to redo, to rewrite the manuscript again. Mm-hmm. And then it became doggy dog. Yeah. yeah. So James was also my first reader. Oh, is it? Uh, my mm. first novel, he was, he was the external first reader mm. and he took absolute credit for my writing mm. career. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. He was a very good man. Yeah. A very good guy. I mean, he had patience because <clears throat> with mine, you know, it, 
it was full of all these things, uh, flowery words, you mm. know, from law school and mm-hmm. stuff like mm-hmm. that. So he said, cut it. I said, let's cut this. Let's cut this. So I learned, uh, that's in that process because I was heavily involved in that process is the process that helped me to be also to edit, to be, um, you know, developmental editor, mm. you know, yeah. to self edit. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, interesting. So 12 to 15 years later, we have the Fees Must Fall movement. And I remember writing an article at the time about the the literary antecedents of Fees Must Fall. And one of the first manuscripts I came across was Dog Eat Dog, because those were all the Fees Must Fall issues in novel form. That was the experience of the students who experienced homelessness, who experienced Mm. hunger, who experienced bursaries promised but then falling through, not coming through, Um, the challenges of having to stand in an administrative office and try to make some receptionist Mm. understand your plight and feel Mm. sympathy for it, Um, academic exclusion, uh, financial exclusion. It was all there in that first Mm. manuscript. When you saw the Fees Must Fall movement start to happen before your eyes did it take you back to those times definitely absolutely it, it did one of the things that i wrote i mean um uh, how doggy dog came about is that some of it, it's it's uh, semi-biographical uh, not everything of course i made most of the things up but um uh, when i went to vet university that's a, a exact experience uh, that I've, uh, when I say semi-biographical, some of them might not been have been necessarily, some of the experiences are not necessarily my experience. I took other people's experiences mm-hmm. and made them mine, you know, mm-hmm. to, in order to write this particular novel. So if I say, for instance, if you want a bursary, an accommodation, a mm-hmm. vets, mm-hmm. you have to say you are from a rural area. Okay. You know? Okay. Because if you say I'm from Johannesburg, say commute, come right. to, you know? Right. And how do you commute in a family that d- depends on a, f- a pension, pension right. fund that is supporting 16 people here? It means that some of the days you might not come to school because of lack of mm. money, you know? So you have to lie in order to be at the residence so mm. that you can study with other kids mm. and uh, you, you are not disturbed when you are studying, mm-hmm. you know? Mm. Um, other things like, uh, if you want, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, also to, uh, uh, to get, uh, there are peace jobs mm-hmm. in the university, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. if you want those peace jobs, you have to lie that you, no one in your family is working. Right. You know? So I use that. And guess what? Uh, I was a manager of the Vets Bar from 1994 to 1997. Important experience, yeah, that. Exactly. I worked with the vice chancellor at the 11th floor, you know, because, and I worked at a campus craft shop. So, uh, in the same year, so I changed these jobs and I, I earned. <clears throat> and with this money that I earned, I, wa- I was able to pay school fees for my younger brother at home. <laughs> Yeah, Which leads us to, yeah. to one of your best known books, Black yeah. Tax. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so, so it, it, that's exactly what's happening because we don't know, we don't have generational wealth, mm. you know, mm. even where you are living in your house, for instance. By then, it was not, it was an apartheid house, which was leased to us for 99 years. So it means that at any time you can ch- be chucked out. It's one of the houses that don't have, um, we didn't have titled it. The title deed is owned by the government there. So the government can easily say go. So, uh, you also want to extend your house at home. Mm-hmm. Why? Because uh, you cannot afford to come from vet and study in the dining room or a kitchen because your five sisters occupy this particular room. Your mother and father are there. And then your brother, six of them are sleeping in a dining room. You know? Nick, do you literally have five sisters and six brothers, or are yeah, you talking? Yeah. Uh, uh, so at home, you I, have, personally. Yeah, I have, yeah, I have. Uh, oh, are they five now? Uh, <laughs> let me just count. We are nine actually. We're supposed to be ten. One passed away. Uh, oh, 
Okay. By then we're nine. Yeah. So we're nine. We're nine, and then sometimes it's difficult to call. But we're nine. Children. <laughs> yeah. In a two-bedroom, and then uh, one bedroom belongs to the father and mother. Mm-hmm. That one you cannot enter. The other one, because we're a patriarchal society, is for boys. <clears throat> All six of them sleeping there. Maybe one of them is waking. You will wake up at four o'clock. Uh, switch on the light while you are sleeping. Mm-hmm. You cannot read at night because he wants to sleep. He's going to work. You know, you cannot go to the kitchen. To, if you go to the kitchen, wait until they have they have cooked. You know, mm-hmm. if you are in a dining room, wait until everybody has uh, watched TV. Uh, that's when you can start sleeping. So. You I'm worried want, about the sisters. Where are they sleeping? They would sleep in a, a, a you, at, at my home, we say, uh, you will find a position where you sleep. So within the house, in the kitchen or in the dining room, you know? Okay. So, yeah, that's, that, that's exactly what happens. So, and it's not unique to my, it, yes. some have got yes. 15, you know, because as you rightly mentioned, black text, we have cousins and cousins in uh, our tradition. We don't have what we say, what uh, white people have. They say once <coughs> a cousin, once removed, what, what, what. Yeah. We don't have that. It's mm. a brother or a sister. Yeah, yeah. brother, yeah. half brother. Yeah. We would we distinguish have, between that. We don't you have would half. Not. We don't have their brothers. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right, so, right. So, so, uh, and with us, you don't have to tell me that you are coming. So at any time, it's your, this is tea time, it's your home. So uh, three brother can r- r- rock up with friends, mm-hmm. and they will have to sleep there. So you'll have to find position where to sleep, you know, because they are there, mm. you know. So it, it's from that. Every time then you get an opportunity to go to an institution, they don't understand their family dynamics. And they still say, ah, you can commit from home. But mm. which home? Because... Uh, my mother is not educated. If I come back with books, sometimes she'll light the stove with them. You my know? goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. She's not educated. She doesn't know. Ah, I've, I've been looking for firelighter and then I, you know, and that's the book that you do type to, <laughs> you know. So, 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 so those are the dynamics that, yeah. yeah. So when you go to an institution like Vet University, because our cultures have been made to be different, we didn't understand each other and we still don't understand each other. Um, it's difficult for me to say, uh, I, I cannot go back to that place. I want mm-hmm. to study here uh, mm-hmm. so that I cannot pass. Because most of the students that fail is be, uh, at the university, it's not because they are dumb or, uh, you know, stupid and stuff like that. It's because it's difficult to cope. Mm-hmm. There's a test tomorrow. For instance, uh, Mr. Van der Merve from Randbeck go and study in their study room. Me in Soweto in Shawelo, or in Orlando West, I have to wait for my brothers to watch TV first, mm. and it's done. And then uh, by the time they're done with the TV, then I can read, you know? Yeah. Um, it's it's a lot to take in. Um, mm. I'm, I'm like, I, I could talk to you all day about this because yeah. it's fascinating, but mm. I want us to come back to something you said at the beginning mm. that has been playing in my mind as you've been speaking about you being a writer who writes on inspiration. Um, and one of the things I'm fascinated in is writing process. How many words do you write? Where do you write? And as you're speaking now, I'm thinking, mm-hmm. how does how does a writer who writes on inspiration come from this background where you must have had to be quite disciplined to get any time to do anything? Mm-hmm. How do you write? Um, you said you write on inspiration. Do you do you write every day? Do you have a set amount of words? Do you have a place you write? Take us mm. into the world of your writing. Oh, okay. Um, I'm a seasonal writer. Let me say so. Seasonal. So uh, there is a particular season that I don't want to wake up and then uh, you know go on a computer, sit mm. on a desk. I don't sit on the desk. I've never sat on the desk to write. I always like lying on my bed, whether reading or writing. I lay on my bed or on a couch. And then do that. Otherwise, if I sit like this, it's becoming too formal for me. Ah. My writing process won't work, you know. Um, but uh, what I do is that uh, I read a lot, maybe a particular season. Like in June, uh, when it's cold, I like reading. Okay. Yeah. I like reading because a book, you can take a book and in a warm place and whatever, mm-hmm. you know, and then you just do that. But when I, now I write, there's a writing season. When it's hot... 
I do that. And then I, because writing to me, it's a process, you know. Um, uh, so I, I, going back to your question, when do you write? I write every day. But uh, the way I write is different perhaps from others in a sense that what I consider writing, writing is a process. Um, it, 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 it starts with me uh, observing. Then it starts with me uh, taking notes, for instance. It starts with me thinking about a particular theme that it will work, it doesn't work. I think a story true, you know. And then uh, some of the things that I cannot do, I cannot write until I have a, 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 a title. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I interesting. I cannot write anything until I have a title. I have to find a title first. Then that title will take me to to the writing the, to the writing. So, the last process of my writing, for instance, <coughs> is um, the last towards the last stage. One of the last stages is typing, sitting behind the desk, and mm-hmm. then uh, uh, recreating what I've already taken notes. So I'll have notes full of uh, maybe a particular okay. theme. Let me write this story about I've seen somebody who has uh, decided that they want to be a lawyer, they failed or Okay, so I have mind mapping. I've done mind mapping a long time ago. And then now I sit down and then I type. And you know how it's going to end when you start. No, yeah, yeah. So when I start typing, I have a story from uh, uh, beginning until the end. But it's always, it. my story uh, is not, it takes a particular turn. So, the magic happens. Yeah, yeah. It takes a particular turn later on, you know. Uh, I, so I cannot start a story. When I start writing, I know exactly that my story is about this guy who goes A, B, C, and D. And I've got, um, you know, a mind map around that. I know that this chapter, I'll speak about him or her doing this and this. It will end with them doing like this. So when I write, I write like that. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it will go according mm. to the way I have uh, planned it, you know, because sometimes a character wants to die. <laughs> you know? And then uh, it's difficult when they die without your permission. <laughs> exactly. yeah, yeah, they, kind of, they, yeah, they they do that, or the character refuses to die. You know, it, it happens. You know, and it happens a lot to me. So, in that process, then I go back and then uh, do the rewriting. You know, I go back again and then rethink that particular story. What if this character doesn't die? What if the character dies? What if the character gets married? You know, it's such kind of thing. So that's uh, how I do it. Yeah. But I don't have a particular, I don't have that luxury of a particular, uh, I hear most writers say, oh, four o'clock until five. It's good. For me, it's impossible. I live in Soweto when I'm here. I live in Soweto. Uh, I cannot do that. Even though there was no load shedding, I wouldn't do that because I'm surrounded by shebins. <laughs> and then sometimes you are writing and feel like, ah, let me leave this character alone. Let me go and buy a beer over there, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then sometimes you hear dr- uh, uh, drunken people coming out singing and say, ah, let me change this story and let them do this, you know? So, uh, I, that's what I'm saying. I write by inspiration, you know, and inspiration come in uh, it's multifaceted, you know, it comes in different directions to me, uh, depending where I am. And then, but when I'm in Berlin, for instance, um, uh, things change because there, there's no load shading, for instance. You can take a book and uh, write, you can take your computer and write in a uh, symmetry, something that has never happened in South <laughs> Africa, you know? So you write everywhere. So uh, you, I have to change pattern. That's why when I was there, I produced quite a lot because it was easier for me not to think about other things, you know, yeah. So... um after Dog Eat Dog and After Tears, and I'm very inst- interested to hear that they were basically one manuscript that yeah. you then, because they seem, the one seems to follow on from the other very much. Yeah. Um, was it after that that the New York Times profiled you? No, no the New York Times uh, profiled me in 2006. It was, I only had uh, Doggy Dog. Only Doggy Dog, Dog was Dog after that yes. stage. And um, uh, how they profiled me was that um, they... Uh, 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 I mean, two uh, uh, tragic thing had happened in South Africa. 
Paswanimpe had died, who was my lecturer at VETS, mm-hmm. African Literature. Mm-hmm. Silo Deka died as well right. in 2005. Right. And then uh, I've never met Silo, but we used to talk a little bit on, um, you know, on emails. Right. emails. Okay. We, we used to exchange emails. So New York Times came uh, because Silo and Paswani, I mean, and the literary scene in South Africa, for instance, uh, from the um, uh, black writer's perspective, young black writer's perspective, was bleak. You right, know? right. So right. when these two great authors uh, died, they thought like, let uh, a good scoop was to go to South Africa and see what is it that South Africans are doing? Is there any literature since these people died? Yeah. And by then, Unfortunately, it was only uh, maybe me. I think um, I mean I, I think it was only me amongst the r- younger writers. I'm not talking Zix and Dal, you know, uh, younger writers. It was me, and then uh, why me in particular was the fact that uh, the book itself talked about South Africa after apartheid, mm. so the challenges were different, and then they felt like um, the book explores. Uh, 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 you know, uh, 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 issues of today around that time, you know, homelessness, wanting to get education, you know, uh, unemployment, uh, HIV and AIDS around that time. So they thought like this is the book that addresses the themes. Mm-hmm. So uh, fortunately, they found a book, they came here, they found a book, they profiled me. And, uh, you know, when they approached me, I said, oh, I mean, the book has been sitting for two years. Uh, but it was doing uh, fairly well because mm-hmm. it, even at exclusive books, it was one of the best sellers and stuff because it was new. Then yeah. the writing style w- mm-hmm. w- was different, you know, from what they had read before, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, with the bastardization of English mm-hmm. language in it, you know. So they were interested in that. And then they gave me 10 or 8 to 10 pages Jeez. profiling. Amazing. And then once they profiled that book, uh, you anything from New York Times is taken from in France, mm-hmm. in Sweden, produced as it is, you know. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, oh, Nick is there, Nick is here. Mm-hmm. Oh, there's an offer there, there's an offer there. So for translation from rights, yeah, from translation rights. So that that's how it happened actually. And yeah. and Nick, from that, you you've got this enormous success in unexpected countries for me unexpected because your writing is so south african you know it is deeply deeply south african but yet somehow you've caught the imagination um of europeans um you you're really successful in europe what do you think it is about your writing that that's managed to cross that bridge no no no. the thing uh, uh, this is what um uh, there are lots of things i think i think one of uh, the things that i had people say is that, uh, you know, when uh, w- w- most people write, they write in a particular way, following Shakespeare, following James Coutier, following Andre Brank style, mm, you know. Mm, mm. So um, uh, to them, it was something uh, new in, uh, you know, in, in the way, uh, the, 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 the language, the existence mm. of the language. I didn't care about the language i cared about what i'm writing about you know so i i wrote the language in the way that i speak it mm. you know and in the way uh, that i know from my community people will understand it so it was not something fancy something intellectual you know i just called a spade a spade so that's what i've had from different okay. people and more especially the topics i mm. was head on when i talk about uh, sexual encounter i speak about it mm-hmm. i don't hit behind the bush mm-hmm. and say they were in a sweet congress or stuff <laughs> they were having sex you mm-hmm. know right. such kind of things so i think that's one of the things that attracted people say oh this guy is so blunt and uh, when your book started to catch fire internationally did you ever come under pressure to tone down the tsotsi tal to make it more understandable to Western audience, maybe to to write about different themes, was mm. that ever a pressure that you were aware of, or mm. were were the publishers happy for you to continue as I, you were? I, I thank you for that question. I'll tell you what happened uh, practically. Uh, the book was uh, 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 republished in uh, by Ohio Press. Mm-hmm. 
and then uh, they sent me a manuscript. It was so there was no way to shape in. Mm-hmm. So you have to say, speak easy. <laughs> okay. So you say a robot, they say cancel it. Mm. They say, no, it should be uh, traffic lights. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I said, I turned it back. And I said, no, uh, uh, I'm writing for edutainment. Mm-hmm. So I write to educate mm-hmm. and entertain. Mm-hmm. So we rather put that, it, it in the glossary. So right. I read so many things about in, in America, for instance, and everywhere where they speak about uh, things that I don't know. Mm. But mm-hmm. because I read from the context, I really understand. And that helps me to understand those things. Yeah. You know? So why should I change? You know? So it's one of the occasions that had happened. And I said no. And then they had to go back and say, we will write it the way you want it. And then um, uh, another thing is that in other languages that the book has been translated into, for mm. instance, I cannot ever say because I, I, by then I couldn't speak German. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, even now I don't speak German that much. I, I speak a little. So um, I don't speak Italian. I don't speak French. Mm-hmm. I don't speak Swedish. I don't speak Miss. So in those languages, I don't have a say. Mm. You know, I, I cannot ever say. But when it comes to uh, 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 the republication into the language that I understand, mm-hmm. I ask for that particular test, text to be sent to me mm-hmm. because I refuse to be, uh, you know, to be, uh, 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 I, I write to, it's, it, it defeats the purpose of my writing. If I say, I allow them to, um, to uh, publish the book and trans and translate my words into American uh, colloquial or whatever, you know, because of them. So I, uh, I, I, I normally say no. Yeah. I wish I'd spoken to you three years ago. You're making me think of, I once had an ongoing debate with an editor about what we were going to call a bucky for the mm-hmm. English audience and for the American audience. And what is a bucky? Is it a truck? No, it's not a truck. Is it a lorry? No, it's not a lorry. And eventually mm-hmm. we settled on van. And I wish I'd learned from you to just say it's a bucky, damn it. Yeah. So after starting your career with these two semi-autobiographical novels, you then move on to Way Back Home. And I know you yourself weren't in exile. You weren't a returning exile. No, but I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so now you, you move into creating a character that is not directly based on your life. Yep. Now, was this something you had to do research for or was it just speaking to people in your community that you got the inspiration for that story. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, thanks for that. Um, what happens is that, uh, uh, as I said earlier on, I lived in Orlando, uh, Orlando West. Mm-hmm. Villagas Street was my street, you know, highly politicized uh, uh, street, you know, mm-hmm. because of all the reasons, you know, so it's uprising and stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, when I was growing up. Most of the things that everyone my age wanted to do, because we're highly politicized, you mm-hmm. know, there's a, a Zefmu Tuping over there was the leader of the PEC. There was Nelson Mandela's house over there, uh, Tato Motana, whoever, you know, they were there around the same mm-hmm. area. And this is the historical place. So when you grow up, what do you want to do? You want to join a political movement. And you want to go into exile. Mm-hmm. So, um, like a career choice. I will be <laughs> yeah, <in> exactly. Exile. <laughs> exactly. Because there were lots of people coming to recruit you, you know, some telling you, Oh, there's, uh, we eat lots of meat that side. Mm-hmm. There's, uh, 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 you know, three course meal or whatever. So they create this fantasy exile. Mm-hmm. And every day you wake up, where is so and so? Oh no, it's gone into exile. Where is so-and-so, you, you know, such kind yeah. of thing. So that's how uh, that area was more of, you know. So uh, there was also one particular guy that left and then came back. Mm-hmm. Not only him, but different people. There was one person that I knew left and then, you know, and then always there was political uh, debates. In my area, my house, always also political debates and stuff, you know. That's inspired me because those stories that people were telling are the stories that I said, ah, 
But the exiled people, when they came back, what did they do? There are poor ones and there are rich ones. Mm -hmm. Let me focus on this one. And then, so uh, coming back to your question, it was more of um, observation and then fictionalizing an observation uh, that was... um, uh, that was presented to me by nature of politics around the area that I was in. So uh, I fictionalized the character, but based him mm-hmm. on a particular particular characters that I knew, you know. So because I knew I know particular characters that were rich and particular ca- characters that came back poor. Right. And then mm-hmm. uh, so I said, okay, to myself, let me focus on this one, who is now who was now a killer around mm. that area because, but more importantly, when I was writing the book, um, also was inspired by uh, many unsung women heroes mm-hmm. that were mm-hmm. involved in the struggle, but we don't get to hear about them because history is narrated through the eyes of the males, you mm. know, in mm-hmm. most cases, you know. So I wanted to give these characters names mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. and faces uh, you know, and uh, also uh, trying to show, um, you know, the, the the kind of leadership, a uh, 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 tormented, uh, tra- uh, traumatized leadership mm-hmm. that is currently leading us. You know, they are from exile. Lots of things happen. Uh, what happens in exile? It's not talked about. It wasn't know? all eating yeah. three course meat yeah, meals. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what inspired the book, you know. But also having to uh, fuse that with a traditional ways of healing, mm-hmm. you know, because we as black people, for instance, believe a lot into ancestral, I mean, the wisdom that has been passed to us by ancestors in terms of healing. Uh, I mean, of course, right now, nowadays we believe uh, there are people that believe in Western ways of healing. Mm-hmm. But in the book, I was just trying to say that there are both Western ways of healing and um, uh, traditional ways of healing are equally important, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what uh, the, the essence of the book was all about. Yeah. Right. Mm. Um, and then you brought out Affluenza, your first collection of short stories. Yeah. And I know Gail has a question about yeah. that. Yeah. So I'm very interested. You have an idea. How do you know whether that idea is going to grow into a novel or a short story? Do you have to think about it a lot or do you just know as soon as you have the idea? Yeah, I think it's both ways. It's both ways. First of all, let, let me just say what inspired me to write short stories in the first place, that particular, mm. uh, you know, collection. You know, there were lots of things happening around. Uh, one of the first short stories there, actually, I think the number one, Gollywood drama, was the story that was uh, commissioned. Oh, okay. Yeah. So these are the stories that we've not published in uh, in English. Mm-hmm. So I send a short story to Germany, for instance. It's uh, one of the shortest shorts, the back end of our street, for instance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the first short story I wrote, which okay. was commissioned by uh, a publisher in Germany uh, who wanted to collect different South African, young South African writers. Silo Deka was there, different kind of, yeah, all of us were, most of us were there to write about South Africa at the moment, what is South Africa happening. Mm. And then, uh, so World Cup came, and then Italians say, ah, write, uh, can you write something about it? And I went to for Gollywood drama because they were paying, you mm-hmm. know, short stories pay. <laughs> that, that's the thing, short stories pay. I mean, <laughs> if I received good money, mm. it was, you know, they say, oh, yes, 4,000, write about your short story mm-hmm. in, in euros. I said, oh, what the fuck? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> you know, and then I, I wrote that short story. And then, so I realized that my stories are spread, you know, apart. Mm. What can I do? Let, let me find them a home. Mm-hmm. And then I, um, I, I decided to write, uh, to put them in a collection. Mm. But, um, by then, very few uh, publishers mm. uh, accepted short stories. Mm. Still but, to this day, it's yeah, difficult to publish yeah, a short but story now collection. You see the trend now, we opened up the trend. Right. right now right. the trend, everyone is looking for short stories. Okay. Why? Because at the moment, what's happening, 90% of everything that we see on uh, Netflix, Showmax, and what, mm-hmm. they are um, 
they're adaptation. Right, right, right. You right. think about uh, one of your favorite, my favorite films, Shawshank Redemption, mm. it's a short story. Mm. Right. You know, right, different right. things are short stories, you mm. know. Uh, so uh, producers of films, uh, short stories can get into films as well, mm. you know. So that's why they're taking them, the, the you know, many uh, publishers uh, are looking into uh, that genre as well. It's not a. Po- it was not a popular in South Africa. It was it was one of the popular genre, of course, from uh, back back then. But uh, in the sixties, of course, we know about drama or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so we are bringing with short stories. We brought we were bringing back that kind of tradition. But going back to your question, is that um, when uh, after writing these uh, different short stories for from uh, which were commissioned by different people and which were not published in English, which is the language that my most of my audience are speaking. Mm. Uh, so I decided to myself, look, uh, let me find these stories at home. And then, of course, I added some and then they became affluenza. And who inspired me to do that was uh, Spur Mahala because he had a collection okay, out. Okay, yes, yeah. yes, and yes. Then, uh, if we, he's one of the guys who had the first guy, uh, I mean, amongst my peers, who had the first sh- short story collection out. So I said, okay, let me sp- uh, send it to Quella. Mm-hmm. The reason Quella accepted is because my name was already mm. uh, out there, you right, know. Right. Yeah. And uh, those short stories are even today, they are being asked. The people are asking them. They are commissioned right. for films and whatever. Of course, they never materialize sometimes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we know that yeah. story. <laughs> yeah, but they are commissioned. They are commissioned. But uh, I'm saying, okay, I'm, I'm cashing up on them. It's fine. You know, commissioned. We give you an expiry date. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Nick, which do you prefer writing, short stories or long form? Uh, right at the moment, you know, I prefer a lot of short stories. Why I do so? Because um, I feel like when I write a novel, uh, I don't get uh, to uh, the kind of, to, to address the theme the way I want it, you know. Mm-hmm. Giving an example, when I wrote about Doggy Dog, I wanted it to talk about that theme of um, uh, the students' challenges at mm. the university. Mm. But no one picked it until mm. uh, at a later stage. Mm. <laughs> People picked mm. it at a later stage. And that's when, after they've seen me writing that, ah, uh, this is uh, exactly what I talked about, you know? Mm. So, uh, but when it comes to a short story, when you pick up a theme, no one misses it. Because mm-hmm. you stick to it. You, yeah. know, you stick to it. When you want to address gender-based violence in South Africa and you say this is gender-based violence, it becomes a story about gender-based violence. Yeah. Whereas in novels, it's multi-themed. Mm-hmm. So it depends on the theme that has been projected more than the other. You know, right. uh, yeah. That's how people pick it. So yeah. that's why I prefer short stories because, yes, I feel like, ah, I've done my thing because even the reviewers have picked this thing. So I'm done with this thing, with this thing. You know, I'm no longer coming back to it because I've addressed it. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed even in your novels that there are side characters and digressions and mm. stories within the stories. Yeah. And one's reading and your attention sort of goes over there and you think, now mm. what's that guy's story? Yeah. What's this woman's story? Mm. And you have a, a curiosity mm. to learn more about those side characters. So mm. I feel like in your collections of short stories, that's what you're giving us. You're giving us the stories of all the side characters and all the digressions and all mm. the different themes yeah. are, are being isolated and explored in that short format. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then you find that I've written maybe 11 short stories, all different things themes that I've picked, they come the way you wanted them to be, you know, mm, mm. and uh, so it's a, it makes you happy as a writer, you know, because you feel like people understand uh, what I've written. Mm. You, you you feel like you have, you know, I always say that when I write, it's more like I have a sickness. It's like going mm. to a doctor, you have a sickness and you want to heal. And if this particular uh, sickness, the way of addressing this particular sickness is when people know exactly what you are trying to they diag- it's more like audience are diagnosing or reviewers are diagnosing whatever sickness you have mm-hmm. and then once they diagnose it correctly 
Mm. It means that you are healed. So in novels, in most cases, it's more like mm, somebody saying, "Ah, Nick addresses uh, 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 his depiction of women is rude and whatever," and it's like. I, I was not writing about that. <laughs> I was writing about this. Mm -hmm. So you feel like people are getting the wrong mm. end of this, <laughs> of the stick. So I just wanted to talk quickly about the collections that you have curated and edited. Mm -hmm. The first one being Black Tax. Yeah. How did that come about? Was it your idea that you then went looking for a publisher for, or did a publisher approach you and ask you to put together this collection? So it came about, this one came, Black Text came about, um, is, is the idea that we, firstly, it was Annie uh, who, who approached me, mm -hmm. but is, is the idea that I already had, that I was also speaking about in, um, you know, in my Facebook and mm -hmm. say, yeah, mm -hmm. but, I was approached by Annie. She already had that idea as well, you know, uh, to say that let's talk about that because around December, uh, we have realized that people are talking, I'm not going home, you know. Right. I'm not, uh, because my mother is going to abuse me, they will want money for A, B, C, and D. Mm. I'm not going home because this unveiling, and then I just been there, there was funeral uh, later on, and I'm the one who paid this money, you know. So people start talking about that that kind of a pressure, you know? So it became a topic became on social topic media. That, yes. It was, uh, to be honest with you, it was something that has been uh, in the social media. It was boom. You know, it was like everyone was talking mm. about it. But in terms of approach, it was any who approached me, but it was already the topic that was there, you know? Yeah. yeah. So uh, Jonathan Ball played a role in uh, uh, in that. So they asked, uh, would I be interested in, to, in, in writing that? And then I said, okay. But I told them, okay, if I write, I write it in this, I'll look for my own pe people that I know will write about this topic. Mm -hmm. So I went about looking about people that, to, people that have got different experiences, mm -hmm. for instance. Um, so some said yes, some, didn't understand what is it. Some wanted lots of money. Mm -hmm. So I had to settle with those that uh, were interested in this particular topics. And uh, those are the ones that ended up in the, you know, in the collection itself. Yeah. And did you ever have the experience of having to reject people's stories? Many. I think uh, it was, uh, how many? 41 or something. Mm -hmm. We ended up with how many? 26. Okay. Because there were lots of rejections. People didn't understand the brief. Mm -hmm. uh, because I just said to people, write about your lived experience. Right. You right. know, write about. So some didn't understand. They write a short story. Okay. Instead mm -hmm. of their lived experience. So it became too much fictional and stuff. You know, some will not, will send you half baked stuff, mm -hmm. although many were known writers, you know, mm -hmm. they will mm -hmm. give you high, half baked stuff because they are busy somewhere. Or so I just, just decided, no, let me take people that have uh, put more effort into it. And then, yeah. So yes, the rejection was too many. And was and, that uh, difficult to maybe somebody that you knew personally who was an established writer, you'd approach them, ask for a story, and then you have to say, actually, no, we, we're not accepting yeah, this. I, I was lucky to have uh, Jonathan Ball backing, you know, because okay. I told him, no, look, uh, me and any certain said, okay, look, we have asked these people, they've, they've sent some stuff. Let's give them a compensation. So everyone was compensated, whether your story was there. Oh, great. Oh, great. Yes. So... 11 people, how many? Yeah, we were given money, you know, okay. even though their stories were not good. And that's the process that I used even uh, with uh, Jakana uh, for uh, Jobek Noah and um, Hauntings. Right. I used the same strategy because it works. You still want these people to work with you, you know. Right. It might be because uh, how I pitched the idea to them was not... Uh, it might be my fault. It might have been my fault that I didn't pitch it the way I should. I was supposed to pitch to them, you know. And then, so I couldn't fault these people. So that's the reason I uh, we decided let's uh, give them something. 
Yeah, and they were happy. Most of them were happy. I'm yeah. sure they were happy. To yeah. get, uh, I'd be happy with that. I've never heard yeah. of being paid for a story that yeah, it was published. not much. Listen, it was not much. Uh, but it's uh, something. Yeah, it's something. And uh, it's something to, mm. with your effort, you know. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but you have to have a polite way of saying to people, look, mm. it didn't work. We were looking for this and then this didn't work. Yeah. And majority of people saw it that it didn't work after the publication. Said, oh, ah, okay. This is, yeah. Right, right. Mm. Um, so Nick, we want to ask you, as we ask all our guests, what stories have you been consuming lately? Either something you've been listening to or reading or watching. What has spoken to you lately? Uh, on Netflix, what has spoken to me is uh, a series called Suits. Oh, right, 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 yeah, with Meghan I, Markle. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I watch that religiously because it's, if you look at it, it's closer to after tears, eh? because okay. somebody tries to be a lawyer and they're not a lawyer. Yes, you know, yes, you yes, know. that's right. Good not point. Fully yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, so I watch that quite a lot. But uh, in terms of uh, reading, I'm reading Madame Bovary. That is very intellectual. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because, um, you know, it's, um, uh, uh, what interests me is that um, the books that have been translated from another language to another language, I'm looking Mm -hmm. into that. I'm looking for the technique, you know, uh, how they've done it. So um, I, I read books concurrently in most cases. So there are five. Arab books, but Madame okay. Bovary at the moment, it's one of the books that is on my uh, table, you know, my reading desk. Yeah. Okay, well, Nick, thank you so much for your time. You are one of the few writers, basically in the world, whose first novel is still in print. People can still buy that that first novel from 18 or more years ago. And basically, I think all of your publications are still in print. They can still be found somewhere in translation or in English. And your most recent published work is For You, I'd Steal a Goat, a collection of short stories. So I'd like everybody to ask for that by name at their favorite bookstore. Thank you so much for coming in. This has been great. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Nick. Well, that was another fascinating conversation, Gail. What did you completely, completely? What did you take from Nick from that conversation? So, one of the things that really resonated with me was something he said quite early in in the talk, which he said that everybody needs someone to teach them the techniques, and I think it's such an important part of coming to writing and learning to write Mm -hmm. that you have to come to writing with humility Mm -hmm. and you have to come open to learning because it really is true that none of us are just born knowing how to write and even if you are a prolific reader there are important things you have to learn when you come to the writing life. That's so true. I know I personally wasted years of my life trying to teach myself to write. I really believed that there was nothing anybody else could teach me. I thought that doing a writing course was for losers, Mm -hmm. that I could figure it all out myself. And I literally wasted years fumbling around in the dark, producing manuscripts that were really not up to scratch. Mm -hmm. And finally, through trial and error, managed to make it towards something that was publishable. But I, I could have cut out years just by having a slightly more humble attitude, being willing to take a writing course, being willing to take instruction, mm. to learn the techniques that other writers do know. And yeah, just basically be willing to be the student in the situation. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, and all the writing books. There's so many books about writing that are just incredible. And we could have a whole show about which writing books are the ones that are useful, which aren't. But the more you read, I always feel if, if from every source, every course you do, every book you read, you learn one thing. Mm. That's great. You've, you've really learned something. What did you take from the Nick interview? Well, I was fascinated by what he said about sticking to his guns when he was coming under pressure from his publishers to change his manuscripts in a way that really didn't feel intrinsically right to him. And even though he probably wasn't a giant name at the time and did not have a great deal of reputation and power, he he stuck to it. He Mm -hmm. insisted on 
producing the English language manuscripts the way he felt comfortable mm. with. And I just find that admirable. And I do think one has to pick your battles because very often the editor is right. Mm. In fact, probably 99% of the time the editor is <laughs> right. But in that 1% of the time where the change that's being suggested doesn't feel right mm. to you, then stick to your gun, stand up for your manuscript, stand up for what you believe in. Uh, I think that was an important lesson that I got from him. So we've had a strange combination between come to it with humility <laughs> and don't come to it with humility yes, at with all. total <laughs> arrogance and, and belief in your own product. Um, Gail, what would you like to teach our readers this week? Is there is there any kind of instruction that you would like to impart? So I listened to something fascinating this week and I, I was listening to a podcast where Ruth Ozeki was talking about her new book, Book of Form and Emptiness. That's the My Year of Meat writer. Yes, and yes. she's magnificent. I haven't read this one mm-hmm. um, because I'm reading very badly at the moment and I think she's too clever for me at the moment. <laughs> but she is magnificent and she's very inspiring. But she did this thing that I am now hungry to try mm-hmm. where If something entered her real life, she used it in the book. Mm -hmm. So the example she gave is somebody gave her a snow globe. So she made a character in her book receive a snow globe. Mm -hmm. And then she saw where that went, and that character ended up collecting snow globes. And I love this idea of using the quite the trivia Mm -hmm. of your daily life and using it in your writing. So that's something... I'm going to try in my next, in, when, when I start writing a new book again, maybe it's going to be what I had for supper mm-hmm. T- to use the material that the mundane material that comes out of your everyday and use it in a creative way. I'm very excited about that. Awesome. And you, Fiona? I think for me, the other thing that really inspired me about Nick's talk, and there, there was so much there really was, was don't let the challenges of your everyday life get in the way of writing. Mm. So Nick talked about load shedding. He talked about growing up in a room with maybe nine other siblings who take priority over you. Mm. And somehow in all these circumstances throughout his life, from a young age up till now, he has always managed to write. And Mm. he is prolific and he has an impressive body of work behind him. So really there's no excuse for any of us. We, I don't know. we can all make the time. I don't know if you have had that experience, Fiona, of people saying to you, I would write a book, but I don't have the time. Yes, and I would implore yes. those people, listen to Nick's story. If Nick has the time, you have the time. That is so true. It's very inspiring. Thanks again to Nick for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, as always, you can find us on social media. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. If you've been inspired by what Nick has said, please let us know. If you want to try any of the techniques or tactics that we've been discussing, let us know what has provoked, inspired, or caused you to produce good work this week. Share your secrets with us. We want to hear all about it. Thank you and see you next time. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.